The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. If you would, take your scriptures and open to Exodus chapter 4. Continue in our study in Exodus, looking at God's call to Moses and how he responded. We see God moving out in a mighty way to accomplish his redemptive purposes. God unfolding history. He had made a covenant with Abraham that he would give to Abraham and to his descendants the land and that through Abraham and his descendants, all peoples on earth will be blessed. He had all of redemptive history in mind, and he gave Abraham a covenant sign, circumcision, and then made him a promise. Uh, but he said very clearly in Genesis 15 that he himself would not receive this promise, but it would come uh, 400 years uh, later. And after his people, his descendants, had been enslaved in a country not their own. They would be let out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And the time had come for that deliverance. And so God appears in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses, his chosen instrument. And why God chose Moses, we'll never know. Uh, we don't know why he chooses any of us. We shouldn't even inquire concerning this matter. Uh, it's up to God who he chooses. It's up to God how he works. And you're asking the wrong question if you ask, what is it you saw in me, O Lord, that you chose me for this? Moses tried that whole approach. We're going to talk about that a little more tonight. But that has never been the issue. It's just that God chooses and then God works in a mighty way. And so he called uh, Moses and made his calling on him very clear. In Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 8, he says, I have come down to rescue them, the people, uh, from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so God is coming down from heaven. I talked to my kids this morning. Is God up? Is he, is, why does he have to come down? It says in Psalm, I think, was it 14 we were studying this morning, where he looks down from heaven on the sons of man to see if there are any that understand. Well, this is clearly phenomenological language because God is everywhere and he lives in a spirit realm that we can't fully understand. But he consistently reveals this up and down kind of hierarchy because he is mighty and powerful and sovereign. And when he comes down, he's coming down from a position of power. So I have come down, he says, to deliver my people, Exodus 3.8. And then very interestingly in verse 10, he says, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so there's the juxtaposition there, key juxtaposition in verse 8 and 10, the sovereign power of God, the sovereign might of God with human instrumentality in verse 10. The two go together. We can't understand it. We don't know exactly how it works. We just know that God says very plainly in verse 8 of chapter 3, I have come down to deliver my people, so now go and deliver my people. And so it is also with evangelism around the world. It is God sovereignly that draws people to faith in Christ. Do you have that power to make somebody born again through faith in Christ? Of course you do not. And yet God clearly intends to use us as his witnesses uh, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so again, that juxtaposition of God's sovereign activity and our responsibility to be his instruments. That's exciting, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful to be used by God to know that your work has lasting, eternal significance? And so Exodus 3, 8, and 10. A great deal of mystery there. Well, Moses uh, didn't see mystery. He saw terror. 
he saw fear. He saw, I don't want to go. And so he puts up five, uh, he makes five attempts to get out of this calling of God. He makes five efforts to get out of it. And the first in chapter 3, verse 11, as we've seen before, his self-focus. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? This is so consistently the case. As we saw this morning in the Apostle Paul, and as we've discussed before, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he said that God put him under great duress, under hard pressure. They were greatly pressed beyond their ability to endure, so they despaired even of life. In fact, in their hearts they felt the sentence of death, says Paul. But he says, these things happen so that we might no longer rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Oh, how difficult it is to be stripped of self-reliance. How difficult it is when set before us, a, a great task is set before us for us not to look inward to see if we have the resources to meet it. And so God, I think if we're spiritually alive, if we're doing his work, is going to constantly set before us more than we could ever do. He's going to set a task before us so great that we could never accomplish it. And we will learn not to look inward because the resources aren't there. There's no way. Just as the, uh, the disciples had to learn not to look inward when it came to the feeding of the 5,000. It wasn't a time to reach into their pockets and see whether they had uh, enough money to feed such a huge crowd. But that's exactly what they did, a tendency to look inward. And so God had to strip uh, Moses of that. Who am I that I should go? And the answer is, it's not who are you, but it's that I will be with you. And then secondly, we see a kind of an anxiety in verse 13 of Exodus 3. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And we talked about that and the revelation of God. He says, I am who I am. But this is coming from a concern. What if this happens? What if that happens? This is when your imagination goes wild. When he says, uh, I want you to do this or that for me. I want you to go on a short-term mission trip. I want you to quit your job and become a career missionary. Oh my goodness, that could never happen. Oh yes, it could. Yes, it could. Well, what will happen if we do this? Then your imagination starts to run. But the issue is, what is God's call in your life? And so he begins to be anxious, and God gives him a series of things. Self-revelation, I am who I am. And then he speaks of the covenant he made to Abraham. And then he gives him a command and a promise. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has appeared to me. And then uh, predictions he makes in chapter 3, verse 8 through 22, of how it's going to go. One prediction after another. We see God working with his servant, working with him, being gentle with him, uh, leading him out of anxiety. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, the beginning of the chapter we're studying and looking at now, we see flat-out unbelief, just simple unbelief. And this, again, is a problem. Just as we have self-focus, we look inward and we find not the resources that we need to meet the challenge. So when we look upward, we find not the resources that we need to meet the challenge, and that's unbelief. I think you're wrong, God. I think you don't have the power. I think you're wrong about this. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Now, why is this unbelief? Because God plainly told them they would listen to him. The elders of Israel would listen. And at the end of our chapter, we'll find that God was right. That God's word is not unfulfilled. That God's promises are not in vain. When God speaks, it is so. He knows what he's talking about. But this is just unbelief. And so we see self-focus and we see anxiety or imagination gone wild. And we see unbelief. And God gives him three signs, as we've discussed. The three signs and wonders that he gives him to assure him first 
and secondly, to assure the people. And they were the rod that he's holding in his hand, cast down on the ground, it becomes a serpent, and he takes it by the hand, and it changes back into a staff. And secondly, he takes his hand and puts it inside his garment, and it comes out, and it's leprous, and he puts it back into his garment, and it comes out completely healed, just like it was before. And then a future sign that he will show him uh, the river water turning into blood, uh, the river of Nile turned into blood. These signs and wonders are more than anything to assure the people and to assure the servant as well, Moses, that God is, is mighty and powerful and working through Moses. And so the signs and wonders are given to him to get him through his unbelief. Now in chapter 4 verse 10 we look in on the next problem and that is the issue of pride. It is the issue of pride. Very much uh, tied to the earlier matter of self-focus. But he's looking inward and he says uh, in chapter 4, verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now this is a very significant matter. It's a very significant matter because Moses misunderstands how God is going to work and how he's going to work through him. Is he going to work through eloquence? Is he going to work through human speech patterns? Not at all. But this is what Moses thinks. And he says, I've never been eloquent, neither from the beginning nor since you began speaking to your servant. And so this is a concern over eloquence. Again, a consistent human response. You know, seminaries all over the country are working on eloquence. Training in eloquence. You remember one of the old Latin orders put pebbles in his mouth and spoke uh, with pebbles. And then when he would take the pebbles out, then he could speak so very clearly. Is this going to win people to the kingdom of heaven? Is human eloquence of any value in the advancing of the kingdom of heaven? Absolutely not. This is the very thing that Paul rejects in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Take a minute and look there in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. The very thing that the apostle Paul rejected, God also rejected in the case of Moses. Now you know in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is dealing with the wisdom of the Greeks, and the Greeks were very polished in their speaking. Very careful in their wisdom. They were very wise. And they spent their whole time, it says in Acts 17, thinking about ideas and discussing them and debating them. They knew how to turn a phrase. They knew how to be powerful in speech. Uh, but the Apostle Paul was well familiar with this, but just rejected it. He rejected it. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 through 5, it says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So we see that the Apostle Paul has forever turned away from a polished pattern of eloquence. I mean, the Greeks went to school to, to learn this kind of thing. They, they polished their, their speaking uh, gifts and abilities so that they could move people. And this is something I'm very concerned about. You know, ever since uh, the middle of the 19th century with Charles Finney and others, there's been this, this, this uh, focus or emphasis on the, on the human side of the work of God. That if you can get the speaking right, and if you can get the music right, and if you can get the mood right, you can have a revival. 
I actually got a card in the mail. You know, they send us these little three-by-five cards, uh, companies trying to sell us things. And it's actually been reduced and simplified uh, even from Finney's great measures. Now, Finney's new measures had to do with prayer and fasting and all these kinds of things. And if you did those things, there would be a revival. It's just that simple. Now all you need to do is buy a carpet, and you'll have the people of God on their knees. That's what it says. There'll be a revival. The word revival, isn't that true, Andy? I showed you the card. There's a, there, if you buy the right carpet, you can have a revival. You'll have your people down on their knees. So it continues on and on. And this isn't even eloquence. I would prefer eloquence over a good carpet. Uh, but eloquence and carpets do not advance the kingdom of God. And so the Apostle Paul rejected this and turned away. And he, he spoke of his own speaking in, in, uh, consistently in this matter. In 2 Corinthians 10.1, he says, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face, but bold when away. So he's speaking about how he, he's not very impressive when you're with him. When you look at Paul, he's really not much to look at. And his speaking is not very powerful. Same thing in, in chapter 10, verse 10, 2 Corinthians 10, 10. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Again, that's Paul. He's, he's just not much to listen to, frankly. You listen, and there's just nothing there, it seems. Just Christ and him crucified. I was waiting for something else, something more impressive, something more eloquent. And he says in 2 Corinthians 11:6, I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have some knowledge. I mean, that's a very meek statement, isn't it? I'm not a trained speaker, but I have knowledge, he says. And we've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. So what am I getting at here? Go back to Exodus 4. He says, I'm not eloquent. That's what Moses says. He says, I'm not eloquent. He says, I'm not a good speaker, neither in the past nor since you've begun speaking to your servant. Now, I don't know if he was fishing for another miracle there. You know, instantaneous eloquence. God, you did that thing with the hand, you know. Could you do something with my, with my speech patterns? Could you make me eloquent? Now, there's some discussion about Moses' speaking. And there's a debate or some discussion over what the issue was. Could it be he was just an average person, an average speaker? He did not have any kind of a speech impediment, just wasn't very impressive in his speaking. I think that's possible. And actually, it's interesting that Stephen says that he was powerful in speech and action. Now, if you read that in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen's talking about Moses and says he was powerful in speech and action, it could be that he was powerful back in his days in Egypt. But in 40 years of wandering around with the sheep, he's kind of lost it. He does not have that ability any longer. And it seems that God, with the three miracles that he gave him, did not see fit to restore any eloquence or powerful speech to him. But I think I tend to go with those that say that Moses had a, some kind of a physical impediment in his speech. He has a problem, and he says in Exodus 4, if you look at verse, uh, is it verse 11? No, verse 10, he says, O Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. I have a hard time speaking, a hard time forming my words. So we don't know anything beyond that. But I think there was some kind of physical impediment. Now, what is God's response to Moses? Well, look at verse 11. He says, the Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now let me ask you a question. Is your theology big enough to include that verse? Can you take that verse in and believe it? Can you accept what that verse says about the things God does? Look at it very plainly. 
What's the answer? It's a series of questions, but we know the answer to every one, don't we? Who does, in fact, give man his mouth? Well, it's God, and he says it at the end. Is it not I, the Lord? So it is God who gives man his mouth. Who is it that makes him deaf? Stop there. Does God make people deaf? Well, you tell me what verse 11 says. Apparently he does. Apparently he does. And who makes man mute? Who makes him come into the world unable to speak at all? Is it not I, the Lord, he says. And then he says, who gives him sight or perhaps makes him blind? God has the power to do this, and in fact, God does it. You know, we're in a, a modern 21st century era in which we're studying the entire genetic pattern of the human body. And it's getting kind of scary, the lengths to which we're studying this, isn't it? I mean, when you talk about cloning people and all that, and they talk about perhaps getting rid of all kinds of birth defects, this is really arrogant, especially in light of this verse. God is the one who decides what you get, what your basic equipment is when you come into the world. Now, we know that we're operating under a sin-cursed era and that God, I think, ultimately would intend that every eye can see, every mouth could speak, every ear could hear. That's why Jesus did the specific miracles he did. He could have displayed his power in any one of a million different ways. He could have made pink elephants suddenly appear and twirl around. But that, that would have been a display of power, but it would have made no sense. Instead, what he does with his miracles is he restores back the way that it would have been had everything been perfect. And so it, it, in one sense, it doesn't make any sense to have all of the equipment of the eyes and they not be able to see. And so he gives sight to the blind. Take a minute and look over at uh, John chapter 9 to see the same teaching there. In John chapter 9, Jesus is going along with his disciples and they come across a man who was born blind. Now this is a problem, or was a problem, for, for contemporary Jewish theology. Because back in their way of thinking back then, if there was a problem, some kind of, uh, of issue, a physical issue like this, it was a direct chastisement for sin. You know the, the whole Job's counselor's issue. If you have some kind of problem like this, it's because you have sinned. You did something wrong. But the problem is, what if you're born blind? Did you sin in the womb? I mean, they didn't understand. They didn't know how it could work. And so it was a problem. They said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And if the answer is his parents, as some of the rabbis said, they said, well, that doesn't make any sense because, you know, there's a proverb in the book of Ezekiel, the fathers of eaten sour grapes with the children's teeth are set on edge. Every man dies for his own sin. Why should we have this sin continuing on from one generation to the next? So it was a problem. And so they were wrestling with this issue of, of the, the man born blind. They said, who, who sinned this man or his parents? And Jesus answers this way. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that... Now stop there just a moment, okay? What happened so that? Well, the man was born blind. He was born blind so that... What does that tell you? There was purpose behind the man being born blind. Whose purpose could it be? Well, let's find out what Jesus said. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Can it be the devil who would want the work of God displayed in his life? It's impossible. 
And so God ordained that this man be born blind so that Jesus could heal him. Do you see that? But Exodus 4.11 goes beyond that. Exodus 4.11 says everyone that's born blind is born blind at the will of God. And everyone that's born deaf is born deaf at the will of God. And everyone that's born mute is born mute at the will of God. That's what the verse plainly says. And, so, and, and this, is, this is coming directly from the mouth of God. Who gives man his mouth? Who makes him mute? And so let's now apply it to Moses directly. Moses, if you have a speech impediment, it's because I made you that way. And frankly, I chose you probably because you have a speech impediment. I put the word probably in there because the text doesn't say it directly, but it fits in with the way that God works, right? Gideon has too big an army, so God sends most of them home so that he can work a mighty victory through just 300 guys who lap water like dogs, all right? This is our, our God's way. He loves to work through weak, trembling people who are unable and can't do it. That should encourage you, shouldn't it? You bring to God your weakness, your inability, and God uses it. Don't bring to him your might and your strength and your capability. And so could it be that, he was, that Moses was chosen specifically because he was slow of speech and knew that it was not going to be by his own eloquence that anybody was going to get out of Egypt, but only by the might and the power of God? Another verse, look at Isaiah 45, 7. And this shows the sovereign power of God. Isaiah 45, 7. Isaiah the prophet said this. He's speaking of Cyrus. And uh, any of you who are studying uh, with us in Ezra, you know the significance of Isaiah 44 and 45 in which he predicts 150 years ahead of time that Cyrus is coming. But this is what he says. I want you to know who I am. Isaiah 45, 5. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you though you have not acknowledged me. He's speaking to Cyrus here. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. This is our sovereign God. Now, you say, this is very troubling to my theology. Well, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Realize, first of all, that we belong to a sin-cursed race. The wages of sin is death. And anything that we get is better than what we deserve. We don't deserve to be born into this world with a full complement of eyes and ears and mouth and all that. It's a gift of God. But also realize that everything that God does, he does for a wise and loving purpose. Isn't that what he says in John chapter 9? This man was born blind so that the works of God might be revealed in his life. And so it is also with Moses' speech impediment, whatever it may be. He's slow of speech so that God's glory might be revealed through his weakness, that God might actually be able to use his sovereign might and uh, a slow of speech servant like Moses to bring the people out of Egypt. So he says in Exodus 4.11, the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gave, gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Isn't that wonderful? And so Moses presents his weakness to God. He presents his inability. And God says, I will help you speak, and I will give you the words to say. So what I want you to do as you wrestle with this theology and say, oh my goodness, is this the God of the Bible? Well, it's certainly the God of Exodus 4.11. I don't know how else to read the verse. It's just plainly on the page. But yes, it's the God of the Bible. That's a delightful thing. What it shows is that this world is not all there is. And that God puts us in temporarily difficult situations so that his glory might be revealed. 
Bring to God, therefore, your weaknesses. Bring to him your blemishes. Bring to him those things that cause you to struggle the most because those are the places where God can be most glorified. Bring it to him and say, God, use me in spite of all of these things. And so Moses is concerned about how he's going to sound as he stutters, if that's what the problem was. And he says, don't be concerned about that. Go, I'll help you to speak. Now we have our fifth and final opposition from Moses. And what is it? Well, it's right there in verse 13. Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. The Hebrew literally says, Lord, send whom you will. Okay, but in context, the NIV uh, translates it, Lord, find somebody else because I'm not your guy. What would you call this? Well, this is nothing but rebellion. This is, uh, you know, I've, I've heard everything you've had to say. Your burning bush has been quite impressive, and I'll certainly enjoy telling my grandkids about it. Uh, the staff thing was amazing, and that hand inside, all of that was great. And uh, I, I really wish you the best. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for you. Uh, I'm one of the chosen people, too, and I sure hope it works out, so send somebody else, please. I mean, that's remarkable, isn't it? Find someone else, O oh Lord. I found the one I will. I found the servant that I want to use. It's you. And I'm not so easily deterred, okay? But uh, the text doesn't say any of those things. The text says that the Lord's anger burned against Moses. All right, enough is enough. The time has come to go. God has been more than patient. He's shown him works that nobody had ever seen before, burning bush and all those those miracles. And so in verse 14, it says, The Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. Now, clearly that's enough. Moses's, I mean, the Lord's anger is burned against Moses because the time has come for him to go. But he withholds himself. He is slow to anger and very self-controlled. And he stoops again to Moses' weakness. But yet, see the tragedy here. He has already told him, I will be with you. Apparently, that's not enough. So he says, Aaron will be with you, and that does it. Okay, that's fine. That is so human, is it? I need someone to go with me. You're not enough. I can't see you, God. I just hear your words, but I can't see you. If you would just send somebody to go with me, that would be sufficient. And so he says, Aaron, your brother is coming, and he's a good speaker. I'll work through the two of you. Also, we noted last time that we spoke on Exodus how God works at both ends of the line, doesn't he? In a mighty way. He's already moving Aaron out. He's already anticipated this whole discussion, this whole conversation, even to this very point. And he says, I've already moved Aaron out, and the two of you are going to meet together at the mountain of God. And he'll be glad when he sees you, the two of you can go together. So as you think about the work that God's calling you to do, and you start to look inward and get self-focused and uh, say, you know, am I able to do it? And your anxiety starts to work and you start to be uh, flustered about what God will do. And then you start to, to question and to uh, demonstrate unbelief and uh, pride and uh, concerns over eloquence and ultimately leading to flat-out disobedience. I'm not going, God. Realize that God worked through all that with Moses and still used him anyway still moved him in a mighty way. Now, the last lessons of chapter 4 are relatively simple. Let's read through it, and it has to do with Moses putting his house in order before he goes. In verse 18, it says, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are alive. Jethro, Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. 
Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, his wife, uh, took a flint knife, cut her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bride's, bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also all about the miraculous signs that he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So the first thing we notice is that Moses has to put his own house in order. What do we mean by that? Well, he's got to tell Jethro what his plans are. And it's interesting that Moses is the called servant of God. He's a mighty man of God. He's been met in a way that no one ever had up to that point by God. And yet that does not free him from the responsibility to be courteous. I mean, simple courtesy. He's been living in Jethro's house all this time. Jethro took him in when he was a stranger wandering in the desert. Jethro gave him his uh, daughter to be Moses' wife. And so also Jethro entrusted his flock to Moses to care for. And so it was reasonable for Moses to show some common courtesy and tell Jethro what he's doing. And he actually asked permission. Let me go, he says in verse 18, back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And so this is... Uh, this shows, I think, the humility and the courtesy of Moses. He's a great servant called by God on a great mission, but he's not too great to be commonly courteous to a family member, to his father-in-law. However, Moses was not completely truthful to Jethro, was he? He said, I want to see if any of my people are still alive. He's a little bit like Jacob here, kind of concealing the truth. The real issue is God met me in the flames of a burning bush and he's about to lead two million people out of Egypt into the promised land in fulfillment of a promise that he made 400 plus years ago. Instead he says, I want to go back to Egypt and see if any of my people are still alive. So Moses, I think, still can't quite believe what God is going to do through him. Then he gives him in verse 19 through 23 ongoing assurance and instruction. In verse 19, the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. This is reminiscent, I think, of uh, the statement that he makes to Joseph, Mary's husband, in Egypt when he's there with baby Jesus. And uh, Herod had sought to kill Jesus' life, and they were there. He had fled to Egypt uh, and then brought him out of Egypt in fulfillment of the prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. And so the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph with the exact same message. This is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19 and following. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. It's the same message. Now, it's more striking in Jesus' case than it is in Moses, but the same thing. All right, Moses is still alive after 40 years. We have to imagine that there would have been some people 
20 years old who sought to kill Moses back when he committed that murder, on up to 30 and 40 years old. So anywhere from 60 to 80 years old, uh, everything from Pharaoh to his henchmen, they all wanted to kill Moses. They're all dead. The hand of the Lord was against every one of them. How much more striking is it in the baby Jesus' case? For there was a whole bunch of people who were seeking out baby Jesus to kill him. All of those soldiers that were sent to Bethlehem in its vicinity, all of those henchmen of King Herod, all of them were dead. Uh, a hand, the hand of the Lord in judgment. You raise your hand against the Lord's anointed and you will pay. And so it is um, in, uh, in Exodus 4, he gives them assurance that nobody's going to try to take your life. And I think this is a very human assurance, isn't it? Because Moses probably is wondering about this. Is there anybody there who's going to arrest me as soon as I cross the border? Don't worry about it. They're all dead, every one of them. And then he gives uh, a word of assurance in verse 21 through 23. He says, perform those um, miracles, all of the things that I've told you to do, but I'm going to harden his heart so they will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord said, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Now we're going to talk much more in the future about how God hardens Pharaoh's heart. This is a very plain statement that he says, I intend to harden his heart. Uh, right on, on to the final plague, which is the plague on the firstborn. And then he tells Moses, in effect, by threatening his life, to put his house in order. Verses 24 through 26, we have this encounter. As uh, Moses is on his way, uh, it says in verse 24, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Now, we don't know if this was one of those theophanies, an, an appearance of the angel of the Lord, like happened with, um, with uh, Balaam on his donkey. And the angel of the Lord had a sword drawn to kill him. We don't have any idea, but it just says that the angel, or it says the Lord met him on his way and was ready to kill him. The issue was circumcision. It seems that Moses had not circumcised his son. Reading between the lines, we know that Moses had two sons, so possibly one of them was circumcised and one was not. You could speculate that the older of the two was not circumcised, and reading between the lines, it was probably because his wife didn't want the child circumcised. That was part of that Abrahamic covenant. It was part of Moses' strange religion, and he didn't want any, she probably didn't want any part of it, or perhaps Jethro opposed it. Either way, what's interesting is Moses yielded to the will of man or woman, yielded to the will of a person rather than doing the will of God. Clearly, God had given the covenant of circumcision. He intended every firstborn or every, every child, every son, to be circumcised, and Moses did not obey the voice of God. Isn't this ironic? that Moses, as a people pleaser, did not circumcise. The very same issue that Paul faces later in Galatians, as a people pleaser, that he would circumcise. Isn't that interesting? He said, if I were uh, still a servant of Christ, if I were still a servant of man, I would no longer be a servant of Christ. And God has said, the time for circumcision is over. The issue is, what is God saying about circumcision? And here he wanted Moses to circumcise his sons. And he was ready to kill him because he would not do it. You can see the importance of this, though. What is Moses going back to Egypt to do but to fulfill the covenant to Abraham? And his own sons aren't circumcised? This is a very serious matter. And it doesn't matter that it's the wife or perhaps the father-in-law that opposed the circumcision. Who was God going to kill? Moses. And why? It was his responsibility as the head of his household to be sure that all of his sons were circumcised. It was Moses' fault. And I don't know if Moses was struck with paralysis or stunned or something and couldn't move, so his wife takes a knife and saves his life at that moment and circumcises the son. The main issue here is that God intends the servant of God to have his house in order. If you're going to serve God, if you're going to 
follow him and be a useful servant to God, you've got to have your house in order. You've got to have your children obedient, and you've got to walk with the Lord at home. 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5 says, The elder must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And so the leaders of God must have their families in good order. And then in verses 27 through 31, God's word begins to come true. In verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of the Lord, a mountain of God, and he kissed him. Why is this important? Well, remember what God had said back in verse 14. Moses, your, or Aaron, your brother, is coming, and he will be what? He'll be glad to see you. And so he was. Aaron gave him a big greeting, a big kiss, welcomed him, and it was one more evidence of the fulfillment of the word of God. And then it happened again with the elders. What did God say that the elders would do when they heard about this? They would welcome the message. They would be excited about it. The very thing that Moses had questioned in chapter 4, verse 1 did not come true, but rather the fulfillment of God. Verse 28, Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also all about the miraculous signs he commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. So who is right, Moses or God? Well, of course, it was God who was right. God knew very well that the elders would believe, and they accepted him. The elders of Israel did listen. And they fell down and worshipped. They praised God for what God was doing in a mighty way. As I look over Exodus chapter 4, it's a very simple thing. It is that God has called a servant to do a great work. And when he does, the people of God worship. They praise him. They exalt his name because God is doing a mighty thing. Now, let me tell you something. I believe that God is doing a greater thing today than he was doing back then. It's a greater work. Back then he was physically bringing people out into a physical promised land. Now he is saving people from every tribe and language and people and nation into the eternal promised land of heaven. We need to get on board. We need to get active. We need to obey the call that God has given us. As the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.